This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. To spread grace, speak truth, restart, this is the kingdom. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you are listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, that's me, and the Windy City Representer, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Now, Chris, one thing that we both know is that the NBA playoffs are starting this week. Now, among our two cities, Chicago and Atlanta, one of the teams in those two cities isn't going to the playoffs. I want to know how you feel about the the Bulls not making the playoffs. There, you're not even making the the entry game uh, this year. Listen, I uh, you know it would be nice if the Bulls were in the play in or if they were uh, going to the playoffs. But I'm not discouraged because I've said it here before. I'll say it again. A couple years and the Bulls are going to be a dominant basketball team. Uh, so I'm I'm not discouraged. You're not discouraged. After after seeing what happened this season, you're not discouraged. Well, that says something about your faith, brother. I don't know what it's in. I probably wouldn't put my faith in the Bulls, but hey, at least you got some hope because hope flows. But let, let me tell you something about me and why and why I have some hope and why I'm feeling good right now. Because I have a good feeling, and everybody knows I'm a Laker hater. I have a good feeling that the Lakers aren't going to be in the championship at all. And they're not, they're not going to take the trophy home this year. Now they did get to raise the banner for winning. I guess you can even call it a season last year, whatever you want to call it. I hope that banner had an asterisk on it, but I have a good feeling that they're not going to win this year. And it's all because of the team that I have adopted out of pure hate for the Lakers and the team that I have adopted out of pure hate for, for that, that other team is the Nets. That's right. I am a Nets fan, a very rabid, rabid Nets fan this year. And I've even gone so far as to buy me and my son's Nets jerseys because I believe they are going to win. And I believe if they do happen to meet the Lakers, the Fakers in the uh, the championship, they're going that they're going to take care of business, man. So shout out to all my Nets fans out there. All the folks that might have just jumped on the bandwagon. It doesn't matter, man. Represent. Go hard. Uh, we're going to win it this year, man. And so I'm excited about that. But Chris, as usual, man, we got a very serious conversation coming up. It was really one of those times that where it was hard to actually choose which topics to touch on because there was so much to touch on. But we go ahead and go ahead and get into it as usual. And camp, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. Let's get into it, Chris. The Bible says that fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. That's Proverbs 18.2. It seems that sometimes we want just enough information to be dangerous, Chris, to sound informed or to confirm our biases or just enough information to attack our opponents. But we aren't 
really always concerned about having a firm enough grasp on the subject matter to analyze it knowledgeably, to be able to apply it and to relay it to others in a way that would be profitable to them. And this is especially this is especially true in the age of social media. We like to display our wittiness and our opinions often before we even have a solid understanding of the topic at hand. Now, what I'm not trying to suggest right now is that we can't speak on an issue or that we can't express an opinion or that we can't ever send out a tweet without being a subject matter expert. That's not what I'm saying. But if we're going to be honest about this conversation, my brother, sometimes we hold ourselves out to be to have a deeper understanding than we really actually do. For instance, if if you've been paying attention at all to what's going on at, on Twitter for the past week or so, you'd swear that everybody and their mama was experts on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The opinions are strident. The accusations are sharp and abundant. But something tells me, Chris, that most people haven't really thoroughly dug into the history and the recent dynamics of this issue as they would have us believe. Now, Christians are not the exception here. Christians are part of this conversation as well. And there's two kind of not so well informed sides when it comes to the Christian circles, at least the ones that I've been in. You have some folks who think Israel can do no wrong as a biblical matter and that the church must always support them no matter what they do. I think that's questionable theology, but you get that perspective. And a lot of us grew up hearing some not so sound theology on that matter. And so a lot of us make that assumption. But if you look a little closely, you might find something different. Then you have folks who just generally side with the little guy who who say whoever is weaker is assumed to be right. And in my opinion, that's not necessarily a very informed position to have either. Now, this is not to say that, Chris, there aren't some uh, Christians who are very well informed on the issue. There really are. And I've, I've seen a lot of different opinions on both sides from people who I respect that just disagree on it. But I think we should all make sure that we're not on one of those two sides that's just making some really big assumptions. And we haven't really looked into the issue enough to really know what's going on and really know how our faith you know, can speak into this uh, conversation. Now, it's not just us, though. It's not just your everyday person that doesn't really know what's going on in Israel. Some of us do. Many of us don't. But it's not just us. I can say fairly confidently, Chris, that a lot of elected officials probably don't know all that much about this issue. Now, of course, they act like they do. They they always want to act like they do. But many just choose a side based on who their advisors are who may be giving them money, who they get support from, and haven't really dug deeply into the history and to the current dynamics of what's going on there. For instance, writer uh, Ryan Grimm, in an article that I'll mention later, talks about how Representative uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez spoke out very aggressively uh, on, uh, against, an, uh, against an earlier uh, Israel, Israeli assault on Gaza in her successful campaign against Representative Joe Crowley, who was a very strong supporter of Israel in their Queens, New York congressional district. So she spoke out very strongly about this and may have, you know, may have played a part in her actually winning that congressional race. But after she won, when the press asked her questions about it, and then they really were trying to dig into her understanding, 
she admitted that she wasn't all that well versed in the details, that she knew where she sustained, she sustained morally, but that she really didn't know all the details to be specific about where she stood. And it was very clear that she became very hesitant to make any high profile remarks on that point for maybe over a year. Now, beyond now, we've criticized the squad and we've applauded the squad when they've done some good things. So this isn't even a dig at AOC because this happens quite a bit. No candidate, especially no one who hasn't been solely focused on politics for most of their life, is going to be a subject matter expert on every issue. That's just the facts. We, of course, want them to know something about it. We want them to care about it. We want them to have the ability to learn. We want to know what their general disposition is on those type of issues. But I think we have to deal with the fact that they're not going to be experts on everything. And Chris, what we usually do on this on this show. And what I usually try to do to kind of to give context and to really help people understand. Is we you know, I I wanted to go over the history of this Israeli-Palestinian conflict, as we usually do. I wanted to talk about what's going on now. I wanted to apply some Bible to the situation and then I wanted to wax poetic. I was going to take a few hours to read several articles on both sides and then and then just go in. But I got to be honest, Chris, as I was reading. I realized that the articles just weren't going to be enough. That I needed to read a few books from each perspective in order to speak on this with any level of authority. And I never want to come on this platform and talk more than I know. I never want to feed the people what sounds like good information that's really only half cocked. So I decided that on this particular episode, it'll be covered later, but on this particular episode, I wasn't going to speak in depth about the history or the dynamic today. But what I want to challenge everybody to do, everybody who's listening to this podcast right now, is to start reading up on this issue. Do a little reading. And I think you'll find what I found was that it's a whole lot to process. That sometimes it's just too much information to be able to process it in a way that you can give it to others again and have it be profitable to them. I wasn't in the position to do that. Now, we always get messages when we don't take the side that people want us to take. Or we always get messages when we didn't go hard enough on somebody that they wanted us to go hard enough on. Uh, Some people, I'm sure, will suggest that, you know, Justin is skirting the issue because we didn't want to talk in depth about it. But read on this issue yourself and see how long it takes you to form a solid opinion. I will say that a week's time is not enough time to form a solid opinion on this issue if you're really doing the hard work and really doing the reading. We don't always have to spit things out like we automatically know it. Again, I'm fairly familiar with this issue. I have been following it in the news. I have been reading articles about it for some time. But I think there's more depth to it. Right. I think we need to dig a little bit deeper before we we give our own opinions. Now, again, I do have an opinion on it. And I can tell you this, that my opinion is that we need to recognize the Palestinian people's dignity and realize that most of them are not part of Hamas, while at the same time acknowledging that Hamas shouldn't be recklessly launching rockets at Israel. That's the most that I can tell you right now. And we'll get more later. 
But Chris, really what I want to do and I think where I want to take this conversation is I think we should normalize saying that I'm not sure. Saying that I don't know enough about this particular issue to give an informed public opinion on the matter right now. And I think there should be some space even for our elected officials. To say the same thing now, they should be less strident if if that's their position. But we can give them time to to learn this stuff, because especially during a campaign or when you're doing a whole bunch of other stuff, you're not going to be a subject matter expert on everything. It's just not going to happen. So I don't see why it hurts us to allow somebody to admit that as long as they have the capacity and they care enough to actually learn it so that they when they vote and it's time to really, you know, um, to weigh in on the matter, that they do do it in a way that's responsible. What are your thoughts on this, Chris? Yeah, I'm, I was so glad, uh, Justin, when when we connected before the show and, and talked about that this approach to it, because I think what we try to do here on Church Politics Podcast is bring a biblical worldview to issues. Uh, and I don't know that there's uh, a more biblical thing to say in this moment on this particular conflict uh, than what we're saying here today which is it's not helpful to anybody uh, just to go spouting off, you know, partially informed opinions when when there's not a depth of understanding. I think that issues like this actually represent something to me that's missing from a lot of our public discourse. Uh, you know, I'm running for Congress. Uh, and so I, I feel a particular uh, weight and uh, closeness to the the need uh, and the desire to uh, to be sure and be strident on every single issue. But you're not going to be, as you said, Justin, a, an expert on every issue. There are issues that I have worked on for many, many years and in, in very short notice could talk about them in depth and talk about them for a long time because I've worked on those issues in depth. There are issues like this, like you said, I've followed. I've read. I've read a lot in recent times since this has been uh, talked about in the news. But I wouldn't put myself forward as an expert. And I think that the other thing that we should normalize, Justin, is this concept of community, this concept of cooperation, this concept of uh, interdependence. You are not ever going to become uh, an expert on every single issue. Nobody can do that. What you have to be able to do is understand who are the experts, uh, get yourself to a certain level of understanding so that you can engage knowledgeably with those experts, be willing to take advice, be willing to have guidance, be willing for somebody to tell you this is not really what you think it is, you know, uh, and, and you have these extremes uh, that that Justin, you highlighted already, the Israel can do no wrong crowd. Uh, and then you have uh, a group who, because of their kind of worldview and general philosophy, you just go with the little guy. And as I've been talking to folks who have lived in the region, who have studied the region for a long time, uh, you know, because I've been, you know, I want to be very informed about this. I am running for Congress. So, you know, as I'm talking to folks like I said, who've worked in the region, who studied the region, who lived in the region, who think about this stuff all the time. The reality is somewhere uh, 
in between those two extremes. And so the ability to get together with folks who can help you know uh, is very, very important um, when it comes to, to this particular conflict. But I think there's this conflict and this moment in our kind of like public discourse represent a brilliant moment for us to talk about this, which is something I think needs to be talked about in general, because as much as folks are not experts, not every person in the press, not every person in an elected office, not every person on Twitter for sure is an expert in the Middle East, the same can be said for healthcare. The same can be said for voting rights. The same can be said for education and any other issue. This is why we have to learn to work together and to actually listen to each other, be informed by one another, and not take the first three days of a public conversation to paint ourselves into a corner that it makes it really hard for us to get out from, even when we hear very thoughtful and well-informed opinions and viewpoints that should change the mind of a thoughtful person. That's good, man. I mean, this this is about an honest discourse. And so what we of course, what we don't want to do is give politicians opportunities just to say they don't know because they're trying to avoid the question. Right. We still want to know your principles. We still want to know what kind of thoughts you would apply to this conversation. Right. Uh, how, we, how do we think about a, a two state solution? How do we think about the human dignity of people who've been living in a, a place for, for a long time or, or, or the or the dispute over who who it belongs to? Right. We want to hear people kind of think those out. So we're not giving people an out. But we do want to say, hey, if you don't know, if, 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 if you're not the expert here, that's OK, because all you're doing is being honest about that, that particular issue. And, and I think you're right. It has to be done. And that's why we talk so much again, Chris, about institutions, about doing things as a group that shouldn't be foreign to Christians. Yeah. Christians are supposed to be a body. We're supposed to work as a body. None of this should be foreign. It should be things that we're already doing. And I know a lot of you come here to get this some of this information from us and we provide most of it. We want to make sure that we're a little more informed to go even further in depth on this particular issue. But let me say this, Chris, as we get ready for the next um, uh, segment. One thing that I don't like about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict discourse. Is that we almost don't give people an opportunity to be informed because some folks get mad when you ask questions. Some folks get mad when you, you know, don't take their exact position. And so there really isn't an open discourse on this. I mean, there's a whole conversation. We know that, you know, this is an organization that is not going to, to support anti-Semitism. That's not something we're going to support. But we can't also can't expand that definition to say that you have to agree with everything that a Zionist may say in order to not be anti-Semitic. Right. We really have to have a, a, a deeper conversation and a more open conversation. Right. I mean, one of the things that you'll hear is people will be called anti-Semitic for holding the same position that center left people in Israel hold. Most people don't even know that a lot of folks in Israel don't even agree on how they should engage the Palestinians. There's disagreement within the country. But if you took the, the side of the folks in the minority who are I mean, there's there they got a critical mass, but they're not the minority. They're the minority in politics right now. Some people would would act like you're against the, the people as a whole when there's disagreement even in that country. Right. So so we need to be able to have a deeper conversation. And I, and I want to see this conversation grow a little bit more and, and be a little more open and transparent. Any last thought, final thoughts on that, Chris? Yeah, I'll, I'll just say that on that issue of 
skirting issues and, and different topics, this is where frameworks come into play. Yeah. Your morals and your values, your biblical worldview or whatever worldview you embrace should be able to give you a moral framework in which you can have a thoughtful conversation and begin to shape opinions. Again, leaders shouldn't be without thoughts and without opinions. Uh, so you can come to this with a moral framework uh, that understands a certain support for Israel, even just as a an ally of the United States for a long time in the region. We can understand that. We can understand from a framework perspective, there are humans. When we talk about Palestinian people, these are people. They are worthy of human dignity. And certain things that we have have held are are granted to us by God because we are human. They should be entitled to those things. So it's not to say that you can't come to this with a framework and some values that shape how you have the conversation. I'm just saying that it's very, very important uh, on this and other issues to look more deeply uh, into the, 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 the dynamics and the history of, of the issues and be able to work together with other folks who just think about this stuff more often than you do and have worked on it longer than you have. You should have relationships with folks who you can trust to speak into things uh, for you. And so I, I could say on this for a long time because I, I think that one of the, the great issues that we have in our discourse right now is that it is not thoughtful enough and that everybody has to hold themselves out as an expert on everything. And that just creates so many problems. But I'll, I'll stop because I can go for forever on that. I couldn't agree more, man. So um, we will be back in a second on the Church Politics Podcast. Hang on in there. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. It's Justin Gibney and Christopher Butler. Now, a little more on this Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, Chris, in an article on his blog, writer uh, Zed Jelani uh, took issue with the way that much of the American press is covering the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, Jelani says that uh, as we rightly criticize Hamas's violence, it's worth thinking about how little we do to recognize the Palestinian struggle when there isn't any violence at all. He notes how the latest round of violence was set off by rising tensions around the coming displacement of Palestinian families in the Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. Families have lived there for basically their entire lives, these Palestinian families. And some Israeli settlers or settler organizations claim that prior to 1948, many of the homes there were owned by Jewish families and they've petitioned Israeli, the Israeli court system to evict these Palestinian families. Now, Giuliani goes on. Uh, Jelani goes on to say portions of the international and alternative press have covered a Palestinian nonviolent movement to save Palestinian families of Sheikh Jarrah for months. But among the American uh, American press, there's been little interest in the legal and nonviolent activism by Palestinians to protect their homes and their human rights. He shows uh, graphs that, that show CNN, Fox News, MSNBC and even P PBS. Uh, I'm sorry, P yeah, PBS hardly ever mention the issue until there's violence. 
even though there's been a nonviolent effort there for years and years and years, it just gets no attention. So I think what uh, Jelani's point is here is that the American press, in a way, is kind of setting up some bad incentive structures for Palestinians who may be trying to get our attention. Does this justify what Hamas is doing by shooting rockets? No, it doesn't justify what they're doing. But if we're not reporting, if we're only uh, reporting on the violence, then you're going to get more violence for people to think they have to be heard. That's just the reality of it. The other thing, though, is if we always just report on the violence, the picture that we paint of the Palestinian people becomes something that's not very accurate. Most Palestinians are not in Hamas. Even the ones who are in somewhat in conflict with uh, the Israeli government aren't people that are actually being violent on a day to day basis. And this is the way that they go about it. We need you know, we need to see people reporting on just the effort to to get a hearing and the effort to have a a larger conversation or to change some of those policies by people who are being nonviolent. But like they say, if it bleeds, it leads. And too often our press is focused on when something completely erupts. But if we care about this issue, if we care about the people on both sides, shouldn't there be more of a conversation on what's going on, even when it's not violent? Chris, what were your thoughts about this article? So I read the article, Justin, with a, a, a lot of interest and um, very much get where uh, Zed Jelani is coming from. I think I pushed back a little bit um, as an organizer. You know, I would be a little bit careful here not to set up what I would say is sort of a dangerous false binary uh, where we say that if the nonviolent tactics that uh, Palestinian advocates have been engaged in over these recent months uh, and even years, don't work or haven't worked, then violence is their only alternative. Um, I think that this is where the idea of moral imagination has to come into play. Now, there is obviously some some share of the burden that the media in the West uh, has to has to take, but effective tactics are supposed to be developed by asking, How do we use what we have to put pressure on those who can meet our demands to make them give us what we want? Uh, And so in this conversation about effective advocacy, uh, I think there is a burden on the advocate to be innovative and to create. I think there is a certain burden on the advocate to win the imagination of audiences whose sympathies and support might be important to advancing uh, our issues. You know, this is what we look at. It's one of the things that I talk about a lot. When we look at Gandhi, when we look at Martin Luther King and and the the leaders of the civil rights movement, often we want to be able to just do what they did, march how they marched, sing Mm -hmm movement songs, the way they sang movement songs uh, and anticipate that we're going to win on our issues because we do what they did. Uh, And I don't think that that's the way that you develop effective tactics. You have to have tactics that work 
in your moment, in your time, with your people, with your targets. Uh, and, and there's a, a freshness to tactical development that, that has to come. I think that's one of the, the precious things that we have uh, as believers is that I, I do believe that when you engage uh, in, in kingdom work in the civic space with kingdom purpose, that the Holy Spirit will actually inspire uh, great tactical thought. Uh, so I understand where uh, Zed Jelani is coming from, and to a, a great degree, I agree with him. But I would just say that is the whole burden can't be on the West uh, and on our news media. Uh, there also has to be a burden on that nonviolent advocate to figure out how do I be nonviolent but still win hearts? How do I be nonviolent, but still capture imaginations? Uh, and, and, and I'll say this, this should also be instructive for, uh, for, for us for, and campaign people, right? Because we have a, a movement that experiences some similar uh, dynamics here, right? There's this massive community of compassionate believers all over the country who feel politically homeless and neither party talks about us or talks to us very much. Uh, and there is a uh, a real temptation just to be like, yo, they should pay more attention to us. But some of that burden is on us to figure out how do we win these moments. And so I, I, I love what Zajlani is talking about because I think it raises an important issue that there is a nonviolent movement uh, in Palestine. But I, I, I think that we should pray for uh, that movement, we should have a, at least hold it in our heads that the whole burden can't be on um, on everybody else and that there is not necessarily this binary choice where, you know, either we pay attention to the tactics that they've employed currently or then, you know, violence is their only other option. Yeah, no, I think you make some good points. Uh, and I think there's two ways to look at it, right? Um, because I don't, I don't think he was trying to put the whole burden on them. Um, I don't think, I also didn't think that, uh, the Palestinian nonviolent folks were just kind of whining about it or anything like that. Um, but I think we, you do have to say, so if we just say, okay, what's the responsibility of the press as they enter into this conversation, right? If they're going to cover this, honestly, if they're going to have respect for what, where the Palestinian pe- people are, it does seem a little off to just be covering it when it's violence. And I think he did a pretty good job of showing no, like there's, no coverage when it comes to the American press on the the nonviolent efforts. And those are serious efforts. I mean, these are people who are putting their bodies in harm's way. I, I don't want to belittle kind of their efforts and what they've been doing. I mean, to a certain extent, you know, capturing the imaginations of people has to do with what they report on. Right. And we saw through the civil rights movement when people actually saw the dogs attacking kids, when they saw the water hoses and, you know, folks from SNCC and other folks really and how they were being treated. Then, you know, the imaginations, you know, opened up. But you still had to have that. part. I mean, that had been happening for a long time and, and nobody was reporting on it. Right. Somebody had to, re- at, to at some point report on it. Right. So there is that side to say as a responsible journalist, as somebody who's trying to give people a sense of real of the reality in that space. Do I have a responsibility to not just cover the stuff that's most provocative or the st- stuff that paints a certain group in, a, in another way? On the other end, absolutely. You can't just, you know, even when the ad campaign, we can't just do stuff just to get the attention of other people. But we can't you know, we can't expect them to do the work that we're supposed to do. 
the, the, the press is not the activist. And we've had some issues where we've gotten some big names to sign on the stuff. We've made statements. We've done a lot of things and the press just wouldn't cover it. Now, I may have my opinions on why that happened. I don't necessarily think it's completely fair. But to your point, what I'm not going to do is sit here and cry about it. Right. We've got to find ways to get to our base and to get to people, even if we can't go through the mainstream media, which may just be a reality for us. And we're cool with that because we're willing to do the grassroots work to get it done. So not necessarily disagreeing you disagreeing with you, but I did want to highlight that as responsible journalists that are that are talking about once you decide you're going to report on the issue, you need to report on it in a way that's that's accurately showing reality and that's responsible. And I think there could be a little more reporting on that because I didn't know about the nonviolent. Ever. I hadn't even thought that it, it existed. I don't think that should be the space that American people are in when you have a press who who claims to kind of be reporting on it in a in a responsible way. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, you are. Completely right about that. And I, I don't want to be taken to 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 let the, the press off the hook. I think I'm I've moved into a different headspace in terms of how we think about tactics uh, and, and advocacy in, in the world right now. And, and you just said um, something that I think is an important phrase to like get into. Right. The press is not the activist. And I think that should be true. I think that used to be true. I think in certain mm-hmm. cases with certain individuals, that probably is still true. But in many, many cases, that is not true. The press has become much more activist in nature. Uh, and and so it's, it's the other thing that I wanted to say that I just wrote down when I was uh, reading and responding to the article is that we have to really begin to understand. I, I want to say this to uh, to end campaign people, because I, I don't know that I've, I've got a huge sort of standing to say it to a lot of other folks. But we have to begin to understand, uh, especially in the United States, uh, that we have this cultural fight that we have to win. Uh, and we've got to win it in our homes and in our families and in our churches and in our communities, because this uh, this idea, if it bleeds, it leads is true uh, in our media, but we actually can manage our press by what we consume. Uh, And we've talked about it a few times here about this idea of media hygiene, and we have to absolutely resist the urge and can't to to just drink in what the mainstream media is putting out. It is, a lot of it is, just too activisty, and it is too much trying to tell one side of the story. It, it would be, uh, I would love Justin to to be able to have this conversation and really believe in my heart that the lack of reporting on the nonviolent movement among Palestinian people uh, was a an issue of journalistic negligence uh, and and not you know purposeful. Uh, you know, sort of disregard for that movement. Uh, but I don't know that I can necessarily say that I believe that uh, down to my bones. Uh, and so I just want to take the opportunity to remind us that th- that that's a real fight. Um, I think that, you know, when, when y'all hear Justin say, you know, go support this podcast, uh, support the Pantheon and uh, share it and, and, and send it around, that is support for the podcast. And and we definitely appreciate that. But I also want us to begin to see that as movement building, 
Uh, I want us to begin to see that as uh, as protest and activism to begin to share not just this podcast, but other outlets where you can get meaningful information, where you can get balanced analysis, where you can get something other than the sort of one-sided activist views that you're going to get in most of mainstream media. Uh, and so that's the other piece of this is that if, if you feel any kinship or desire to see more coverage on nonviolent movements in Palestine uh, or among Palestinian people, I should say, or, um, or really coverage on anything that comes in a balanced and thoughtful way, then you have to start to uh, practice that media hygiene, dig into outlets and things that may not be coming from the mainstream. And yes, it's a little bit harder. Yes, we're going to ask you to put 25 bucks in the in the Patreon and all that stuff. But this is the new movement. This is what I was just talking about a few minutes ago. A lot of times it is not that we need to go have a march, is that we need to get you know three times as many subscribers to the Church Politics Podcast. And that is movement building. And that is protest. That was a word, brother. Um, I can't really disagree with any of that stuff, man. Um, all I say is, is, is amen. And, you know, this again, this is an issue. We're going we gonna to get to it. We're going to dig into it, whether we bring some other, you know, some experts on on it. I'm going to keep reading up on it. It's not that we're not going to apply the framework. There's the compassion. You, any, any perspective that doesn't include the human dignity of the Palestinian people is out in my in my uh, estimation, whether it comes from your theology or whatever, your theology is leading you to believe that you can treat folks any kind of way. Not cool. You know, anything that just ignores the fact that folks are just shooting rockets, you know, recklessly into random spaces with a lot of people there and then hiding behind the people. This is what Hamas is doing, hiding behind their own people and saying, oh, you killed our people. Well, you you're shooting from those places. And in some instances, there's people who are saying that there was there was no Hamas in Gaza or, where, or wherever or some of the places that they were shooting at. We can get into that later, too. So we do want to weigh into it, but we always want to be honest about where we're at, man. And Chris really dropped the mic there. So we're going to go uh, take a break and then we'll be right back. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the And Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the And Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The And Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. All right, Chris, uh, I have a problem. Um, as soon as I got my Chris Butler for Congress mask in the mail. And I want to thank you for sending that to me. As soon as I got that, 
the CDC went ahead and changed its mask guidelines. And I mean, you know, I'm not mad at the change, but it's like, man, I was just I just wanted to rock my mask now. Uh, but as soon as this happened, you know, they come out and they say, hey, vaccinated people don't really have to wear masks indoors or outdoors in most circumstances. Uh, and so those got that guidelines have changed. And uh, I think what is director uh, Rochelle uh, Walensky came out and made that announcement. What was that last week? So am I ever going to get to wear my mask without looking pretentious? I don't know. Uh, maybe people will just assume that I haven't been vaccinated. Who, who knows? But as we could expect, Chris, once this information comes out, it becomes this bombshell. Right. Like both sides start going at each other and using it to uh, weaponizing it to to go at each other and claim one side is dumb and the other side is smart and all that stuff that that we talk about on and on again. As we know, Chris, at the beginning of this pandemic, conservatives were defiantly saying that they weren't going to wear masks because it was was the Democrats who were telling or progressives who were telling them to wear masks. Now we have progressives who are defiantly wearing masks, who are saying, hey, I don't care what the CDC says. I'm still going to wear my mask even after I've been vaccinated. Right. Um, And this is kind of the argument. This is what I've been calling for a long time, Chris, this empty defiance, really doing things despite the other side. And the sad thing is there were people who died early on in this based on trying to prove a point. Based on trying to say, I'm not I'm going to go to this event, I'm not going to wear a mask. And then you catch COVID and you pass away. I mean, it's, it's really sad. This this empty defiance that we see in our cultural landscape and our political landscape is dangerous. And we see this moving forward on and on. You know, initially, the progressives wanted everybody just to follow science. That was the hey, just follow the science. Now, apparently. The science isn't enough. Right. So so today on both sides, what we're seeing, Chris, is that it's really all about the narrative. It's really about all about the narrative of making your opposition seem stupid and evil. And it's rarely about the principle. It's rarely about the facts. It's rarely about the science. And see, what happens is you have these folks who, who, who are creating these narratives and are putting this messaging out there. And then you have people that grab onto it, make it part of their, their identity and just run run with it, whether it's dangerous or not. And so that's why you still do have a lot of uh, progressive cities that aren't open, that are still having trouble getting their kids in school. That's da- That's a problem. That's dangerous. We had folks who were trying to rename schools and do all this other stuff, and the kids still weren't even in the schools. And part of that was just to spite conservatives. I mean, I think people bought into it. I think people felt there were dangers and there were dangers. But even when it was clear that there was a danger in kids not going back to school, the effort behind it wasn't where it needed to be. So we have this continual back and forth. And we remember that in te- when Texas said that they were removing the mask mandate, people basically called Texas Governor Greg Abbott a murderer. Right. You don't care about people. You're kill- killing people. And so I think we do. To be fair, we have to say Governor Abbott posted on Twitter the stats from Texas. And I think this happened today or yesterday. He said uh, they have a new 13th month, 13th month low in the number of COVID positive COVID cases, a new all time low for the seven day COVID positivity rate. And now uh, they have a new 11th month low in COVID hospitalizations. So the mask mandate 
may not have been as big of a deal in Texas. And now, as we're seeing, uh, New York, I think either next week or this week, is going to get rid of the mask mandates in the same way to get things up and running. But still, we have these ideological narratives that we're grasping onto. What are your thoughts on this whole back and forth, Chris? If it weren't so sad, it would be laughable. Uh, I live in one such city and, you know, somebody from my campaign is going to be upset that I say this, but I, I live in a city, Chicago, that has, you know, I think we're at 50 percent of total population having received at least one dose and somewhere close to 70 percent of our older population, I think uh I don't want to misquote the numbers, but our older population, I think they're tracking 65 and over, but close to 70% have been vaccinated. CDC releases the guidelines and our mayor who has been, we have to follow the science. I don't care what anybody says. We're going to keep Chicago safe. We're going to follow the science. CDC says mass mandate. We have to have a mass mandate. And now comes out and is like, well, I'm I'm going to keep wearing my mask wherever I go, especially indoors. I'm going to wear my mask and we're going to have the Department of Health, the Chicago Department of Health uh, review the uh, the order from the CDC and the executive order from the state because the state of Illinois already released you know new guidelines in keeping with the CDC. Uh, but we're we're not going to just jump in on uh on those issues. And it's, it's crazy because, you know, you hear people asking for patience and asking for uh, some sort of compassion when it comes to unmasking, which at one level I understand, right? If you've been doing something for, you know, upwards of a year and you don't necessarily feel safe and it's become part of your rhythm and maybe even close to like some part of your identity. And now you want to, you know, people are asking you to just take the mask off. Okay. That's a little bit of, 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 of a culture shock or whatever, but where was all of that compassion when we were asking people to put masks on who had lived their entire lives without wearing a mask, you know, when they go to a restaurant or when they go to worship and we were asking people to make, we were all asked to make these changes. And I just, really detest the fact that we take these things and put them into these narratives. Because if you take the narratives and this kind of like instinctive political opposition out of it, it is actually quite reasonable because we all just went through a very, very uh, unprecedented and difficult time. And people were reading it differently and different folks had different problems with different parts of it. And that's completely reasonable because none of us have been through anything like that ever before. But instead of us being able to just sit down, come together and be like, yo, I'm glad you made it. You glad I made it. It was crazy, right? Like that should be the narrative. That should be the only narrative. This was something that none of us have been through before. We all had to get through it in the best ways that we can. Yes, there are people in this large, large country who have different sort of values, different sorts of uh, kind of like social dispositions and priorities. And so they were responding to this thing 
uh, differently. But had we been able to have patience and compassion, each person for the other from the beginning, I feel like we could be in a much different place as we begin to see uh, sort of light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to actually beating the actual virus uh, and, and the actual pandemic. We could just be in a much healthier place if we could all just have said, this is wild. We're going to try to get through it. But I don't know. We, That's right. we just were not able to accomplish that. And I think it's sad. And if I recall correctly, Chris, when you, me and Michael Ware were first doing Church Politics Podcast really live on Facebook during the uh, pandemic, one of the biggest asks that we had was, please don't make this. Please don't politicize this. Please don't make this a culture war. Please don't, you know, please don't make this something that we're doing the wrong thing just to spite one another. And sadly, I don't I don't know how much hope we had that that it wouldn't go that way. But sadly, that's exactly what happened. Um, that this just became a culture war issue. Some people wore ma- just wouldn't wear masks. Some people did wear a mask, and it was just based on being on the opposite side of the other people. And this is what I talk about an opposition centered witness. You got to look for what's right, not look at what's going to hurt your opponent or make them look stupid or make them look evil, because that's really all our narratives are about right now. And when we start to spite each other in these political back and forth, that's what it's about. And it's it's unfortunate, man. And and I'm with you. It, It would be funny if it weren't so sad. People died based on this stuff. Kids are out of school and may never catch up based on these silly back and forths. So we've got to learn to do better. As always, y'all, we appreciate you being on, uh, listening to us. We appreciate your support. If you can, go to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash churchpolitics and give to the movement. This is, as Chris said, this is movement building. I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, And we want you to be part of something that is growing and that a lot of Christians are finding a lot of hope in. The AND campaign is trying to do something special for the body and just hope that we continue to be hid behind the cross and just follow in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior. As always, Ann Camp, there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic uh, hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. We'll holler at you. I said, kingdom, come through me, rest in me, kingdom. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.